You're listening to Drek FM. This is Steve Sansweet of Rancho Obi-Wan, and you're listening to the 602 Club. There was a little bar in Mill Valley where all the Starfleet trainees used to go. The 602 Club. You know it. <laughs> I was there more times than I can remember. sewn you up, I've set your bones, but I won't bury you. I've buried enough members of the Wayne family. You leave me? You see only one end to your journey. Leaving is all I have to make you understand. You're not Batman anymore. You have to find another way. You used to talk about finishing about a life beyond that awful cave. Alfred, Rachel died. Knowing that we had decided to be together, that was my life beyond the cave. I can't just move on. She... She didn't. She couldn't. What if she had? She... I mean, I can't change that. What if before she died, she wrote a letter saying she chose Harvey Dent over you? And what if... to spare you pain... I burnt that letter. How dare you use Rachel to try to stop me? I am using the truth, Master Wayne. Maybe it's time we all stop trying to outsmart the truth and let it have its day. Welcome, everyone, to the 602 Club. We are back. Trek FM's dedicated general geek show. I'm so excited to be here tonight because we are finishing up what I think could be argued to be the best cinema trilogy of all time and i i say that as a star wars fan but star wars now has seven films so it's not a trilogy anymore so get off my back fans so i yeah i'm so excited to be here to talk about the dark knight rises with some incredible gentlemen who i will introduce to you in a moment but i think you know who's here just remember of course you can find all of the Trek FM shows that we are a part of on iTunes.com slash Trek FM. Uh, we're a feature provider there on iTunes. Very pleased to be that. Uh, while you're there, uh, John, what should they do if they are on iTunes? Well, surprise, I'm here. Uh, and I would say that uh, what they should do is they should go ahead and give a star rating and a review for the 602 Club. Uh, let Matt know what you think of this fine program that he releases for you on a weekly basis. And, uh, you know, those reviews, they really help people find the show and uh, help spread the word of the 602 Club and help its continuing mission to spread a positive point of view on film. I, I like that. I really like that. A more, a more positive point of view. Hmm. Tristan, uh, they can find us all over the place, too. Uh, we're on, like, Twitter and Facebook. Uh, where should they go if they want to, you know, maybe hit us up with some conversation? Well, I think the, the best way to get a hold of, uh, of, of you and all of us is on Facebook.com slash TrekFM, as well as within the Babel Conference, which you can find on Trek.FM and on Facebook. It's a closed Facebook group, but if you ask to be invited, you most likely will be. We're all over Twitter, at TrekFM, so all the places you can find us. And, of course, you can leave us a voicemail at speakpipe.com slash trekfm, and you can contact the show 
through email, just go to trek.fm slash contact, choose a show, choose the 602 Club. It'll come to me. I'll feed it on to the hosts, and we'll be able to talk about whatever it is that you have sent in, which, you know what? Uh, if we get some more emails, some questions, we, we could possibly do a mailbag supplemental. So send them on in. I love getting emails. Well, guys, we're here for one reason, and one reason only is because a dark night rose, and we're here to talk about it. And there's no better place to start than I think like we did the last time, which is the opening. Because if you thought the last opening was good, I don't know, did they top it? I will say that they at least matched it. Because that opening of The Dark Knight made a huge, huge impression in setting up the Joker's character. And I think that the that Bane's setup in the, uh, the prologue sequence um, was pretty fantastic and i think that uh seeing it i mean again i the first time i saw it i saw it in imax and um it it it, it just it basically like stunned the audience into submission better is such a subjective term i think that in terms of setting up the character and the anticipation of what was to come over the next two plus hours i think it it matched that at at the very least I agree with you, John, where in regards of setting up the character, it did it did its job. Whether it did it better or not is immaterial, I think, in this perspective, because it established the tone, it established the look, and it told you exactly who Bane is and what he's willing to do and what depths he's willing to go in order to achieve his, miss- his mission or his plan. And I, th- I think... That's the only way that you can you can really um, look at it, at least from my own perspective, is did it accomplish its goal? Did Chris Nolan accomplish his goal? And the answer is yes. I think to me, you know, uh, the thing that just really, especially in the rewatch uh, that I had over the weekend, the scene where he's just hanging by one arm, you know, as, as the plane is upside down, and he is just this hulking mass, and everything about him there's this utter confidence in all that they're doing. He's not scared. You know, I mean, he's just, he owns that scene from the moment they pull the hood off of him. And I think really setting himself apart in a good way from the Joker. I think that's one of the things that you get here is he's very different than that type of villain that we had before. Uh, And I think this scene is just, the masterful thing about it is the whole thing feels as real as possible like a never and never in my mind any part think oh well that looks fake yeah and and i think that's a very important point to make it really is because there are a lot of filmmakers that would have relied on the cg cheat to make this scene happen and nolan instead did it with an imax camera and with you know i I mean even though i hate the way the term is is overused and everything but practical effects like it was real skydivers and it was a real you know beat up plane set that no wasn't flying but at the very least they shot it so that they had consistent lighting and it you know you knew they were in a real plane fuselage and so it it very much allowed you especially you know in the imax format to buy it to get into it they could not have I don't think that that opening works if they take a single fake sky background or anything like that. You know, like, and of course, I'm sure I'm going to get like, oh, no, they did that in one shot. What? But you know what I'm saying? Like, they 
it was very important to do this as realistically as possible. And I think that's what helped sell it. Nolan knows how to use the camera. That's the thing yeah. is that you you can get one of the most expensive cameras in the world. You can get one of the most advanced cameras in the world, but that doesn't mean you know how to use it. And I I think I was uh I don't like I don't I don't want to criticize too horribly uh pioneers of the work of others, but I remember when they said that, oh, you know, like Adele's new music video is the first music video to be shot on IMAX, and then you watch it and you're like why the hell was this shot on IMAX? It's all <laughs> yeah. just close-ups of her face. And it's just her standing in a meadow and it's all medium shots. You're like, what? Why? Why Why is this happening? Like, And it's... I, I, I'm not trying to compare Adele to The Dark Knight Rises. What I'm trying to say is, is that when you watch this, you can tell it's Mastercraft. Yeah. Well, and, and one of the things that I, I think that I really like about the scene too is the way in which the music immediately inserts itself here and that driving sound and it, it it creates the momentum for Bane and his men and it's all working together perfectly to create and craft I think just a masterful opening to a film that like you said John I think is exactly the way it should be described it beats you into submission so that the rest of the movie you're just kind of glued to everything that's happening because if that's the opening, what's going to happen next? And, and, and it's the same way that I think they were able to do the same thing that they did in The Dark Knight, which is create an opening that makes you go, holy, how are they going to top that? You know, they did the same thing here, and I think it really works. And so everything working together here, and, and like you said, Tristan, Nolan knowing exactly how to use the camera, where to put it, where to place it, um, you know, just the right amount of, I think, sound effects and everything about this works. And I also like the way that the action is telling the story. None of it is choreographed for the audience. You have to be paying attention to what's going on or you're not going to get that they are stealing the blood from the real scientist so that when the plane crashes, they think that scientist is actually dead because all they'll find is the DNA. Right. But he's not. And, and it just, but they're not, there's nothing being soft peddled to the audience here. You need to be paying attention to the action because for Nolan, action isn't just to blow your mind, it's also to tell the story. And that's always the way that I think really action should be if you do it right. And Nolan is a master at that craft, I think, and it really shows up in this scene because no frame is wasted in this moment. And the reaction of his followers really helped to set Bane up. It wasn't just the actions of Bane or um, the, the action around Bane. It was very much the reaction that his followers had to him. Like when he said, he's like, he's like, no, they're going to expect one of us in the crash. That follower did not hesitate. That yeah. follower did not have any change of face, did not have any worry on his face or like have any questions or go like, are you sure? Do I have to do this? Are you sure I have to do this? It's, it was all like, okay, yeah, I'll take off my harness. Yeah. I will die for you. No questions asked except it, like, did we rise? You know, like is, is the fire rising or something? I, how was, yeah. what was the line again there? Uh, have we started fire a rise? fire? No, he have says, we, have we started a fire? Yes, yeah. the fire rises. fire rises. And like he puts his arm up, the fire rises. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, yeah. Yeah. 
And what's really, <laughs> I, I love that you point that out, Tristan, because one of the things that it also does is immediately sets up a framework that we are very much in the milieu of, even still today, of the fanatical follower willing to do whatever it takes to fo- carry out the plan. And and this is, I think, just a continuation of some of the things that we were talking about in, in The Dark Knight, where no one has continued the story to continue to follow the history that we've had. And it's we're just seeing that progression again of like the even more fanatical follower. Uh, and it, I like it. it it's it, There's so much happening right here at the beginning of the film. It's it's just wonderful. I, I do have a question, and I think this ties into you know the, the discussion of the rest of the film and everything, is uh, when I saw the preview in front of MI4, uh, Ghost Protocol, as soon as the guy said, have we started a fire, and Bane says, yes, the fire rises, I remember... And my cousin who saw it with me disagreed with me. I wasn't the only one that said, oh, he's definitely League of Shadows, right? Was I, like, I don't think I had any special insight there. Like, did you guys walk away with the same impression? Were you instantly sold, like, oh, okay, this is League of Shadows, come back? Or was that a surprise later in the film when you found out that he was, you know, trying to fulfill Ra's al Ghul's destiny? Did this give it away for you? Did this prologue give it away for you? Uh, I'll be honest. Uh, no, uh, I wasn't. Uh, it, it it didn't give it away for me. But at the same time, I wasn't surprised when they revealed it either. If that makes sense, I, it was just kind of like a oh, <laughs> when, when that when that when they right. said that in the movie. Right, right. No, I think I'm with you, Tristan. It felt. I, I think when the revelation came, it just felt like a nice circular thing you know we started with the league of shadows we're gonna find our way back there and that so that batman's greatest enemy has always been this organization that continually keeps finding a way i mean it's like the hydra you keep cutting off one head you think you've got it and another one comes back and so i really i actually just really liked it but uh i think john you you definitely had a leg up on me because i i did not realize that i don't believe and until it just was shown in the movie but I, i i also don't think I was probably thinking about it that deeply when I saw the trailer. I was probably too mesmerized by everything else that was going on. <laughs> oh, no, no. I, I, don't think, I don't think that I was unique in any way. Like, I, it, I've, it's a question that I've always, you know, just sort of like asked people because, you know, and, and I, get, I get sort of like a 50-50 split. So, like, I, I, I don't think I was unique in, in, in any way in that read. But I was just curious. Well, and it's interesting because, you know, uh, so we're, we're talking about this as the opening, but there is a actual opening, which is the the funeral for Harvey Dent uh, that Gordon is speaking at. And it's a very quick scene, and then they, they go into this major opening, and then it shifts back to Gotham where they're having Harvey Dent Day. And we really start to come into all the stuff we talked about at last time with the implications of what I like to call the Dent-Rachel deception. Because there are two different deceptions that are happening, uh, that have happened, that are mirroring each other. And they're playing out on the personal side for Bruce, but on the larger side for Gotham. And they're showing the ways in which I think lies impact the individual and then society as a whole. And I just, I thought this was, to me, this is the thing that I love about this film the most 
is the way in which it dealt with the idea of truth and lies and you know the fact that you 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 cannot build a society based on lies because the moment they come out everything just blows up yeah i you know it's it's interesting because i, I like thinking about it you know, now when i go back to dark knight rises there's a specific moment and i know it'll seem strange to tie it this way but there's a specific moment in the avengers where he basically lies to them and says that Coulson had these cards on him when he died and you guys aren't acting like the heroes he thought. And you find out that he was fibbing. And it's so interesting because it's two different approaches to this idea of the lie. Because in the Avengers, they're like, well, this tiny little white lie is okay to tell because it gets everybody together. Whereas Dark Knight is saying that it doesn't... Like, Do you think that Dark Knight Rises is postulating the idea that it's the size of the lie that is detrimental to it or just the lie, a, any lie at all? Do you think that it's the size of the lie? Because the, I mean, I will, I will, you know, straight up say like when they, when they shift over with the, tr the tremendous gear shift into Gotham and Harvey Dent day after that opening was a little bit disorienting. Like I was like, what, wait, wait, what? No, like it came down too quick for me, you know, like at least in dark Knight, you have that, that amazing opening and then you see Batman show up and sort of like, you know, you know, just wipe the floor with a ton of people. And so like, it, you know, there's this sort of denouement moment uh, from the opening in Dark Knight, whereas this, there's just this sudden lurch into a more introspective film. Did that, did that catch you guys off guard at all? Well, you like, asked or, two different or, questions like, yeah. there. Yeah, I know. But like with it, with the lie, but then I, I guess just while I'm thinking about it, like that, that sudden introspective lurch, like did that, I, I mean, I know for me, I, the more, the bigger question that I'm trying to get at here actually is, did it take you guys out of the film for a second? Because I know that the first time I watched it, it was disorienting for me to suddenly go from this tremendous action sequence to this very quiet moment. Uh, no, not really. Uh, sorry to continually disagree with you. I, it's, uh, I, I, no, it's just, uh, it, it didn't, it didn't. I, uh, I think it's it's. I think you did a great job of uh, comparing and contrasting to the Dark Knight because you're right. We like we had this crazy action scene that was very tense and and in, an introduction of a great character, and then we got to see Batman kick ass, and then we got to calm down a little bit. But with this one, I never really I never really thought about it before because you're right. It is a it is a slam on the brakes uh, moment. But it in in that moment, I don't think it bothered me because I continually was trying to figure out what was going on with Bruce. Like my mind was occupied while that was going on, so it wasn't so much like oh oh my god, like the the action has stopped. This is weird. This is awkward. This is oh the action has stopped. What's going on? And so my brain was still engaged. So I think that compensated for what you're talking about. It didn't it didn't shock me or, or pull me out. I think what it did for me was that it set up that, again, this is going to be a slightly different type of movie, you know, because Dark Knight definitely does sets itself apart from uh, Batman Begins, and this one, again, is setting itself apart from that. Uh, and the way in which it's doing it for me is, is exactly what I want to see, which is they took that second film and mind everything saying, okay, all of the story elements that we put on the table with this first and second movie, what's a good resolution to this? And what, 
you know, where do we need to pull themes and where do we need to make sure this all fits together? And it, it's, it, it really is, I think, a, a, to me, it was a masterclass in saying, how do we create a finale for this trilogy that makes you feel like you are rewarded for watching it? And part of the reward for me was the fact that the introspection and the philosophical discussion and the moral discussion of what happens if we build things on lies? And I think, John, the answer to your question about the lie itself is that we see that, you know, the lie that Alfred tells Bruce is a smaller lie, right? But it also has a, a detrimental effect on Bruce Wayne. It, it shuts him down. And I also like the way in which they mention in this scene, you know, um, that Gordon has been paying for the lie with Dent with his own family because mm. he praised the man who almost murdered his family and he lost them because he was trying to save the city but going about it in the wrong way and it like it just it, from the from the smallest aspect and and consequence all the way to the to the very top of w what this has created in Gotham with you know we're putting people in prison under a false pretense uh with uh, a law based on a lie i mean it's just it's just something that from the smallest place to the biggest place it's it's just a chain reaction just ready to explode and and, and it does in the film and uh, to me that was just the idea of talking about just in general morality like this through superheroes is, I think, fantastic because, you know, uh, our our myths and comic books are kind of the American myth uh, are our ways of teaching ourselves things. And the fact that <laughs> this movie was was definitely trying to say something to us that I think is terribly important. In today's society, just only mention of the presidential election, but just a, just a little bit uh, important. The idea of of actual truth. <laughs> uh, sure. So you know, it's it's, it's amazing. Sure. When when I watched this, I when I watched this movie and the entire idea of the Dent Act was was happening, and then you know it was the 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 lie was released, and then the look that John Blake gave. Uh, Gary Oldman uh, and uh, and uh, Gordon and talking about like you know like your your hands look plenty filthy to me or something like that. Yeah. I in that moment, you guys might disagree with me, and I think you will. In that moment, I was just kind of like, "What the hell does it matter?" Like I was I was kind of on Gordon's side where it was even I might have even been taking it further than Gordon where. You know, like John Blake was saying is like, like, you knew even when they used the Dent Act, all these men are behind bars because of the Dent Act and because of you. And it was all based on a lie. I'm kind of to the point where like, I'm kind of with Batman on this one where, yeah, it was based on a lie. But does that mean that these people did like the, the evil things that they did were any less evil just because they had a way to put them behind bars? I, I, I think that's a great question. And I think that speaks to Matt's whole thing about like that. That's what makes this this film so rich to talk about because you have that sort of dilemma. And again, just like Dark Knight postulated the the question about, you know, how far is too far to stop the criminal? This takes it a step further and says we've stopped the criminal. How far is too far to keep them in prison? 
how you know at, at what point do we cross that line what's interesting is i think you and i had similar reactions of i have a sort of defensiveness of gordon in that because I think that there's enough distance in a sense. I think that watching the three movies close together is better because if there's one thing I'm going to knock Dark Knight Rises on, uh, there there are a couple of things, there are a couple of imperfections I'll, you know, I I pick at. But one of the things is I I think that it it relies too much on the trust of the audience to believe that things have not been as good for, you know, the at-risk teens and stuff like that, like in the beginning. It's talking about how you know, just like Rachel talks about, like, you know, everybody says that the depression is over, but it hasn't gone anywhere. And so there, you know, there's this this sort of world building step that's missing. And I think if they had built it a little bit better, it would have spoken to my defensiveness of Gordon in that in that. Yeah, Gordon makes this morally questionable decision, but don't forget how bad Gotham was. Gotham was hell on earth ruled by the mob as if it were an old medieval fiefdom. And mm-hmm. Gordon saw like the one shot he had at cleaning it up. And yes, you can sit there and you can second guess and you can say, morally, it's not the right thing to do. But Gordon's saying, yeah, fine, but I needed, it had to end. You know, like you get the sense of like, he's a guy who was so desperate for just a clean moment in, uh, you know, in, in his life in the city's life that he just took the first thing he saw and it, yeah. Okay. It was a lie, but, and he admit like he admits in that speech, he's like, yeah, it's dirty, but basically we were so desperate to get things clean. We, we try, we were just trying what we could do. So like, I, I think that's where my defensiveness of him comes in that scene. Well, and I'm, I'm on the other side from you guys. I'm not defensive about Gordon at all. I, I'm, I'm completely on the side of, because how the Dent Act led to them basically taking away civil liberties of people and yeah. being able to throw them. And, and let's be honest, it's just Guantanamo that their Blackgate prison is Guantanamo in this movie. Sure. Uh, yeah, they're, they're throwing prisoners in, in Blackgate uh, without any due process uh, or Wait, the due do, process that they deserve. Do we uh, know that? I mean, yeah, I that they they say that about the Dent Act that it gave them um, the ability to block uh, parole for people and all sorts of stuff like that. It, it's it's laced throughout the film, so I I understand what Gordon's feeling and why he made the decision. It's it's not that it's just that they chose to not, and and this is the thing they chose to not trust the people with the truth. And so the moment that they tell people the truth, people have another reason to not trust the system because even the system is dirty. And so this movie is all about well, what happens if people get so fed up with the system that they're willing to just throw the baby out with the bathwater because uh, they, they there's no trust in it anymore. And that's what Bane is able to prey upon and completely throw everything in, into whack because uh, seriously i mean if if you feel like the system is corrupt enough you're more likely to be willing to burn it down than you are to try and fix it or ever trust it again and that's that's the problem with what gordon and batman decide to do 
They don't trust the people to say, you know what? Yeah, yeah uh, Dent was a good guy. He just made some bad decisions, and that's what we all do. Like, they, they, they put him up as a savior when you just be honest with people. No, he's not perfect. He did some good stuff. He did some bad stuff. You know, let's focus on I, the good stuff. Well, I, I mean, I, I don't think that they did, that they put Dent up as a savior so much as they, they, they used him as an excuse to, to make a, a questionable law. And I, and I don't think that Tristan or I are defending the morality of, you know, bad laws or taking civil liberties away. I mean, Tristan, you may be, I mean, I, you know, I feel like I know you better than that, but you know, you could be, but uh, I'm not. Here's a, here's a question I would come at with that is yes. Bain uses that as his wedge to, you know, break the prisoners out of prison and uh, you know, get, get Gotham all riled up, get all, get them all frisky about everything. But isn't Bain in a sense, an inevitability like, isn't Bane going to come for Gotham no matter what? If he is truly trying to, you know, fulfill Ra's al Ghul's destiny, and Ra's al Ghul's goal was to burn Gotham to the ground and have the citizens go nuts and tear themselves apart, you know, all for the greater glory of the League of Shadows, you know, proving civilization needed to be, you know, hit with a reset button. Like, isn't Bane an inevitability? And what it is is they just basically gave him an easier weapon to use than the one he was planning on? Yeah, I think that you hit on the, the nail on the head. You make Bane's job 30 times easier because you created a milieu in Gotham which is ready to accept the truth that you're going to give it and the way in which Bane is going to use the truth to his advantage. Instead of... If you hadn't ever done that as as Batman and Gordon and, you know, Batman had been the hero and Gordon would have been too, uh, I think the city would have been in an even better place than it is with the Dentac. Because the thing about uh, the Dentac, and I disagree with you wholeheartedly, they do put, I mean, they have a whole day called Harvey Dent Day. The guy is like their personal Jesus Christ in Gotham. That's how they put him up there. And he's 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 the Jesus for Gotham. He's the guy that was so perfect that we we craft this whole thing around him and his persona and everything, so that when that false idol, as Bane calls him, falls, and people realize that it it tears the fabric uh, of Gotham society in a way in which I think we just see in our own world when people realize how corrupt the system has actually become. Yeah, I, I mean, the thing is, in terms of the establishment of, like, Harvey Dent Day, I separate. I tend to mentally separate that out from the Harvey Dent Act, bec- just, just the way my brain works, because, like, Harvey Dent Day to me sounds like, you know, it's, it's like a, it's, you know, it's like a Gotham-centric holiday or so, you know, it's almost like a, you know, does anybody really think about, like, what, you know, Memorial Day or Labor Day are about? It's like, no, I got a free day off work, yay. But, like, so... Like, you know, I, I do think that they use Dent and his name as a way to get the act in place. But that's sort of like quibbling over like semantics. I understand what you're saying and I'm not discounting it. I'm just saying like that's where the mental disconnect comes for, for me. But uh, to get back to that whole lie thing, because, Matt, you, you did say earlier, like and I, I've been chewing on this. 
with the dent lie, we know its impact, and we know that you know it hit everything. And Alfred's Rachel lie, Bruce specifically cites as the reason he can't move forward. If Alfred had not lied to him about Rachel, do you think he continues being Batman despite the, the dent act? I think so. I, I think because he would feel like he needed something. I, okay. I feel like, uh, you know, that's the one thing that I feel like if you read, and, and Tristan, I think you can back me up, but when you read Batman comments, he's always driven by something because, you know, relationships don't work out for Batman generally. Uh, and what drives him is that need to be there for Gotham. Uh, especially right now in, in the Rebirth series, Batman is really being driven by that because he's lost another Robin. Spoiler mm-hmm. alert. Uh, and it's it's driving him to want to save everybody and do everything he can. And I think here, the lie that he is fed by Alfred helps him just emotionally completely shut down. Like he lost everything he thought he was living for. If he had just known the truth, he would have, needed some he would have been able to find something else to live for but that and this is where the idea what bane says earlier uh hope the idea of false hope that that creates that that pain in people uh because it's false hope that he was given that he could have been with rachel if she had lived but that's not really true and and so therefore that hope actually poisons bruce instead of setting him free and it's, I think what's so amazing about this movie is it's just scripture come to life. The truth will set you free. And that's exactly what happens in this movie. It sets Gotham free, finally, and it sets Batman free. And Bruce Wayne. I mean, because it's really, this is a story about Bruce, not Batman. Yeah, no, I, I think you're right. I, I, think it's, I think it's right to cite that because, because it, like Al, Alfred specifically calls it out where he says, you know, they, they don't want your body. They don't need your body anymore. They need you. They need your resources to make a difference for, uh, you know, the people of Gotham. You know, they don't need you jumping from rooftop. I mean, you know, now I'm paraphrasing, but, you know, when, when they have the whole Rachel argument and he's saying, you know, they don't need you to throw yourself around at night anymore. Um, you know, they need Bruce Wayne's resources. Um, so I, I, I think I think you're right to call that out. Sure. Why can't we all just. Tell the let, truth. Let the Stop truth have its day. I love John. I love your Kane impression because thank you. It 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 is <laughs> it is like if Michael Kane was twelve years old and dancing around with a lollipop in the in the fields of Britain. <laughs> That oh, is, that was that was the most backhanded compliment I've ever received, Tristan. Thank you, thank you. Oh That's my gosh, an that was awesome. That that is that is how I picture Michael Caine when you do your impression. I think, oh gosh, I think that's the thing that I I love about this movie because Alfred is the first one to really realize this this truth about the truth, and that it it we we've got to try. And we've got to stop trying to outsmart it as if we can go beyond truth. And and to me, that one phrase in this film was so powerful because when I look at our world, that's all I see is that we are we are desperately trying to outsmart the truth of everything. 
and say, oh, there's really, it, it doesn't exist. It, it, but what Alfred's saying is, no, we need to let it have, let it have its day. And it is a powerful clarion call to our entire world and society in the 21st century that no matter how hard you try, you can't outsmart the truth. And when it comes to, to haunt you, it, it will do so with, with vengeance that you have never seen before. One thing that I really liked about that conversation was where it took place. It, I liked that it was in a hallway. It was just in a hallway. And it was a barren hallway. It was two people having a conversation, two people who love each other and care about each other, one who was willing to listen and one who wasn't. It wasn't in the Batcave. It wasn't in his in his office or it wasn't in um like it wasn't outside. It was it was just it was just in a hallway. It was very real to me. Like it wasn't there there wasn't any dynamic motion to it. There wasn't any extreme blocking to it. Like it wasn't very theatrical where like, okay, you know, like, you know, like uh, Chris, I'm going to, I'm going to have you, you know, move from point A to point B, you know, once he says this line, it was, it was two people hashing it out and it completely altered the rest of the movie going forward. But at the same time, it felt like a very real moment. And I, I thoroughly enjoyed that. And it was, um, it, it was kind of, it was the, the last straw of Bruce coming out of that Howard Hughes-esque era and like that was kind of the the final nail in the coffin for him with michael kane leaving with with alfred leaving he's like okay i am now completely um shackle free from this old eight-year life that i had well and that's a great place to to move forward tristan because were you guys shocked when you when we found that out that that's i mean eight years have passed and batman's been on the sidelines for a really long time like I, I remember being in the theater and just kind of being blown away that this is who Batman and Bruce Wayne have become. Uh you know, I I think that um I think that the, there was the, the Gordon trailer where they they had the they showed the conversation in the hospital where you know Bruce says you know and a wonderful callback to Batman Begins where he's having it in a ski mask like he did have the mm -hmm. first conversation with Gordon. You know, and he says, but, you know, Bat basically Batman wasn't necessary anymore. And, and Gordon says, you know, no, you need to come back. The more shocking thing for me, in all the fact that it was eight years was seemed like a long period of time. But the yeah. more disorienting thing for me was Alfred leaving. Like that was for me, that was the mo one of the most unexpected things about the film was Alfred having it out with Bruce and then leaving was like it was completely disorienting because the idea of Bruce Wayne trying to exist without Alfred is is bizarre like it, it's it's nigh impossible to wrap your head around and um so that's I think that's why that I really appreciated it though is because oh, sure you, sure yeah you, you didn't see it coming and because we like we as Batman fans have been so ingrained like Alfred has been so ingrained in our minds that they're there is no Batman without Alfred. There is no Alfred without Batman. It's 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 uh, they're practically conjoined, and they're always a part of each other's story. And so I think Nolan knew this, and to really have di a disoriented Bruce, you needed a disoriented audience. And I think that was the best way to achieve it. And it's interesting too, because I mean, this is the one place that makes I think it's a 
that's a really unique take on Alfred, where Alfred cares more about Bruce than he does about Batman mm-hmm. and Gotham. Whereas in the comics, yes, Alfred cares about Bruce, but he 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 doesn't ever challenge. I don't feel like he ever challenges Bruce the way he does here. Uh, and I think that's just very fascinating uh, that Alfred's main goal is to keep alive this the son basically that was bequeathed to him because of the death of of the Waynes and I think that's a really fascinating and a very human wonderful take on Alfred that sets him apart from all the other Alfreds that I've seen and and I I think you're right to call that out because I think that's what makes that's what makes the Dark Knight movies the Dark Knight trilogy as it's known so resonant and lodged so securely in everybody's brain is that Nolan pays tribute in various ways to the comic storylines and everything, but at the same time, he's not afraid to let the characters actually, to use your own word, be human. And that's what makes this more than more than having you know an explanation for the armor or Fox give a you know a you know a cue tour through James Bond's new equipment or anything like that, and you know and and semi scientific explanations for things. What makes it really real is that Nolan treats these characters as human beings, and that's mm-hmm. what I think really makes it resonate with everybody and why people keep going back to it as, you know, these movies are such a template for, you know, what they want out of, you know, superhero or comic book movies when they, you know, when they claim to be realistic is that this really anchors everything just in the way that it treats the characters. One thing that I really want to ask you guys about is your reaction to all of this. Uh, like, you're basically your reaction to, to The Dark Knight Rises and how they treated his Howard Hughes-ness, his, uh, the, the wartime, peacetime, the eight years going by and everything like that. I really want to ask you guys about this because when I walked out of The Dark Knight Rises, I was disappointed. I was, uh, it did not live up to my own expectations and when I walked out of it, like I, I went to a midnight showing uh, for a bachelor party. I was the best man and I was hosting the bachelor party. Um, we Nerd. were. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> and uh, I, you know, like I went to bed, super, uh, like I went to bed at like they 4 all had uh, Shirley Temples at the bachelor party. It was wonderful. <laughs> Pin the tail on the bachelor. Uh, like I, I had a hearty boy. So uh, that's that's there what I go. drink. <laughs> <laughs> um, but you're know, like, I got up, like I, I got up, uh, and had lunch with my mother-in-law and, uh, my wife and they asked me about it. what do you think? And I was exhausted. And so they thought I hated it. I was like, I didn't, I didn't hate it. And I said, I was like, you know how I feel about the Godfather trilogy. That's kind of how I feel about the dark Knight trilogy. Oh, and bite your tongue. No, no. Listen, listen to this. So the first one, fantastic, marvelous. You can't imagine it being any better. Then you watch the second one and it melts your face off. You're like, how on earth could the second one be better than the first one? And then you have the third one where you're like, eh. I mean, it has a lot of great points, but it doesn't live up to your expectations. <laughs> See, the th- <laughs> you no, no. Okay, whole different conversation. We're not yeah, even having I, that one. That's the thing is that like I like Godfather Part Three more than you do, so that's the problem. You, there. you're a monster. You're a monster. <laughs> but, but here's the thing: is that like, um. The, the main question that I want to ask is the structure of it. I had I think the reason why I didn't like it th- as much as I do now, because 
Uh, John, you and I have talked about this a lot where I think Dark Knight Rises is like a fine wine. It gets better with age. It gets better every single time I see it. But I think the reason why I didn't like it the first time is because I had this idea in my head of how the structure was going to go. When I saw preview images and trailer images of of Bruce Wayne walking around in a cane and being secluded and everything like that, I thought the Bane fight was going to happen. He was going to break the bat. We were going to spend some time with him being dejected and recuperating. And then he's going to build himself back up and have that final fight with Bane. And that's the way that I wanted it to go. And I didn't want eight years to pass because that's a stupid amount of time. And so all of that was happening. And I was like, I, I was like, Chris, Nolan, why, why didn't you call me? I could have told you how to structure this movie. And he didn't. And so I was angry. Okay, see, what's funny is he did structure it that way. He just gave the cane earlier before the fight because the way you described it is essentially the way the movie, the movie plays yeah, out. Yeah, pretty much. I'll, I'll, I'll tell you straight up that the first, time I saw, the first time I saw The Dark Knight, I saw it with uh, a friend and, you know, loved it. I, I told you guys in the last time we talked about The Dark Knight movies, how I reacted to it. Loved it, came out of it, raved about it. This one I actually saw uh, with Agent Bun, my wife. And we were sitting there and it was, it, I, gosh, I think it was the first time since episode three that the two of us went to like a geeky movie like this on opening night. Okay. It was a big monumental thing and saw it at the IMAX theater, which was even cooler. Um, I cried twice during this movie. The first time I cried was when he climbed out of the pit and the, when the bats first flew out, like I cried, like I was like, this is. This is so beautiful. Like it, it's everything to me in that moment. Um, the the symbolism of it, everything that culminated in that moment, everything that happened, uh, right down to one of my favorite bits of small stage business in a film in the last like thirty years is it pays the camera doesn't linger on it, but when he gets out, he picks up the ropes and he throws it down to the yes, people that are trapped yes. in there. Yeah. One of the most beautiful moments of stage business, period. Uh, but anyway, um, and then I cried at the end. Like, I wept at the end because you, I finally got, a, like, a superhero movie that rewarded me for, to, to borrow Matt's sentiment from earlier, it rewarded me for sticking with it, right? It didn't give me this morose ending where I was like, oh, well, I guess it's important that they won morally. It gave me an ending where I was like, yay, everybody, yay, you know, like... Everybody lives! Right. But in terms... I mean, yeah, to quote Doctor Who, but... Yeah, but but in terms of, like, you know, the, the cane and the eight years and all of that stuff, it is disorienting in a sense, but I love it when a movie subverts my expectations like that. Like, that is the way into my heart, is when a movie doesn't say, I'm going to play it by the rules you expect, but it says, I'm going to take... I know what I told you to expect, but I'm going to mess with you. And I'm going to throw things at you that you don't expect. I will react so much more positively to that movie coming out of it. I did not expect, and, I, and this is where I'm, I'm with you, John, I just didn't expect this movie to basically be Batman Reborn. Uh, to have, and, and, and not just Batman Reborn, but Bruce Wayne Reborn. Never expected that. The, the idea that, that Bruce Wayne would be able to hang up the cow at the end of the film. 
to me. I never expected that because that's just not what we expect from a Batman film. Uh, we don't expect there to be a resolution for this character that ends up without him dying. <laughs> and so the fact that you have, I think what you were talking about, John, the literal rebirth of Batman, who you know has been thrown into the pit, into hell, transcends hell, comes back out even stronger and better than before. But it's not just because he's a faster, stronger Batman but it's because he's the Batman who's going to step out of the shadows and into the light. He's going to stop being the Batman that the cops are afraid of, but be the one that is standing next to the cops on the steps of, you know, the the city hall there defending the city. I mean, I think that was the thing that for me that was this so beautiful about this film is that the Dark Knight found his way to the light. And he's no longer just the Dark Knight, but he's he really is truly the savior that not only Gotham deserved, but that it needed. And and to me, that's where this film transcends the la- uh, the Dark Knight because it took all those themes and it just it drove them home like like a spike on a cross, you know, to, to use that that biblical terminology, like. It just, it was the thing that just, it was the perfect punch in the gut that I needed that made, actually made me feel good. Does that make sense at all? It it does make sense. This is the question I have because Tristan, I understand you're coming out a little disappointed and then, you know, it ages like wine. Matt, obviously I understand your walk out of it and saying, this is fantastic. I love this. But there is definitely a more mixed reaction from the fan base than there was with The Dark Knight. The Dark Knight, you talk to anybody, overwhelmingly positive reaction to it. Dark Knight Rises, you will still find people who don't care for it. Why do you think that is? Why do you think that there are people who don't dig it? I think the thing with that is because like because i was in that camp for a little bit like not long but i was in that camp for a little bit where i was just like this is clearly the inferior one of the trilogy and even though it is my third favorite of the trilogy it's still it's still a favorite i still like it um uh in many people's eyes it is inferior and i think there i think one of the main reasons is is because as great as nolan is at directing I think he and the screenwriter, as in his brother, uh, make too, they make the audience make too many leaps where there, there's too many moments where you have to suspend disbelief. And I've, I, I don't like that. One major one that is coming to mind is like, oh, we can't find Bane? Send every single police officer down into the ground. I don't care if they're on training missions. You send every single cop you can in single file, and then we will find him. I'll just, they weren't single file. Just throw that out there. Yeah, I'm exaggerating. (laughs) Shut up. (laughs) But they might as well have been because it was so utterly ridiculous it was so beyond the pale of this would never happen in a million years, not even from a movie standpoint. That's the thing is that like, yes, we're talking about a man who flies around as a bat and beats people. 
what we're talking about is th there's there's several of these moments when you're like really we're doing this or like really we have we're going in this direction clearly the screenwriter wrote himself into a corner and he's like oh well we'll just send all the cops underground let me ask you a question the best time to commit a crime in any city would be when i i would argue when the professional football game is happening yes yes trust yes. me all of the cops are available to do your giant mission at that time because everybody's paying attention to the game so maybe Nolan was making a clever commentary on consumerism, Tristan. Did you ever think about that? <laughs> May, I, yes. I kind of like that. I'm, I, I am just too much of a plebeian to understand. But and also like you just like the stuff with the stuff with Talia and like the uh, just uh, like the, the stuff with the with the, with the bomb. It's just there were so many things that were just like jump points and like not a, not enough bridge points, too many jump points. And possibly the worst, the worst death scene ever in the history of film is in this movie. That's not the first time I've heard you say that. I disagree with you, but well, whatever. be like find comfort in the fact that you're wrong, and then we oh, can okay, <laughs> sure, that's how we're doing it. Okay, go ahead, sure, sure, please, please. <laughs> no, y'all need just... to take this outside because Ruby does not like when you smash up the chairs, boys. <laughs> oh man, okay, no, I just... okay, I. Now, I, I, I can hear what you're saying, Tristan, and my wife and I had this conversation as we were watching the film. She turned to me and said, that's dumb. Yep. You're not going to send all the cops down there. I get what you're saying, but I also, when I'm watching the movie, I can understand the logic of the film and why they do that is that Bane and his group have created a sense of paranoia in the city and... I think they count on the overreaction of those in charge. And that overreaction is this stupidity of sending all of the cops underground, or at least a majority of them. Even Because even if there were some, you know, say you have 100, 200 cops left, it's, it's not going to be enough. So the, the point is, is they got the majority of them down there. And I, I think they've created just a, a situation that, well, I mean... Gordon's not at his best at the moment. He's in the hospital, and we, well, Matthew Modine ain't no Gordon. So true, and I, I, I would say also, Matt, that I'm glad you mentioned the logic of the film, because as much as people like to uh, cite Nolan's, you know, realism, there's very much a, uh, you know, an acknowledgement on his part that he's not dealing with reality. Reality, he roots things in reality so that when you need to take that leap it's easier to take that leap. It's easier for you to say that all the cops went into the tunnels as opposed to, uh, you know, and it wasn't, there, there were at least two that weren't in there. Three, actually. So, you know, wasn't all oh, of them. You're exaggerating there, a little bit. There you go. I'm sorry. 99.9%, .9%, not 100%. I apologize. <laughs> I on, Guys, I honestly believe this is an indefensible position. This, this is such a huge movie sin. I, I, I have never, I, I very, I shouldn't say never, but I cannot remember the last time I ever said that about anything involving movies, about how, like, oh, you know, you have your opinion, I have mine, it's all about perspective. No, this is too much of a leap. This is, like, this is a great movie, but this is a major failing. 
See, it's interesting because the major <laughs> failing that I pick on actually is the editing of uh, like the opening act. Um, you is, oh, is, I, I, you always say editing. Like whenever you have yeah. something wrong with this is just an outside comment. Oh, okay. Whenever okay. you no, no, have no. something Batman wrong with Batman v Superman. I don't like the editing. Uh, uh, yeah, it's like it, he's George and, Lucas or something. No, I don't like I'm, the editing. John, I'm not saying you're wrong. John, I'm not saying you're wrong. I, I, yeah, yeah. I, I'm not saying you're wrong about any times that you've mentioned editing. I'm just saying that whenever you find something really wrong, that's usually the first thing that you go to. Yes, it is, because in the very beginning, if they do not show Alfred, basically the senator being missing, uh, and you know they show him mourning, and then, it's, and then it's the next night, right? You see Gordon on that same night say, hey, let's go find the senator. And then you see Alfred in the morning go down and then see Bruce in there. Uh, and then, you know, they have the discussion about Selena Kyle and then they have the next night. And I, I know this will seem strange, but I'm willing to forgive the, okay, you know, 99% of the cops went down there and they all got trapped in the tunnels, right? And then what I fixate on is why is Gordon wearing the same suit with the thing in his pocket the next day? It's Whereas if you take... Huh? It's his it's his winter coat. It's not in a suit. Oh, it's in yeah, his winter oh, coat. Oh, no nobody changes. Oh, no 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 it's not. It's a suit coat. I no, swear to you it's, it's a, a suit it's coat. his winter coat. No I it is not. You. you are so wrong. Okay, if You're I am so wrong, wrong, here's the thing. Just the other day, just Mr. Fall Fashion over there is no, wrong. Just yesterday, just yesterday, I found a ticket in my suit pocket, not my coat pocket, my suit pocket from 3 years ago. My point is this, <laughs> is that if you simply excise the, the, the I, I think it's two shots of Alfred in daylight going down to the Batcave, then the, 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 the logic of the film, I guess, in a sense, makes more sense. And then you have the two quick nighttime that falls during an incredible action sequence where he's chasing everybody on the motorcycle. Right on the bat pod is chasing everybody on their motorcycles. And so that's that's the sort of stuff that I harp on with this film in particular, as opposed to all of the cops going down, because that has a sort of consistency of everybody's at the football game. We don't need everybody, you know, patrolling the streets. So send in a ton of people down to the caves or the, the tunnels. OK, I got a couple of things to weigh in here. I, I just looked up the screenshots while you were talking, so I Googled that for you guys so I could prove Tristan right. John, you're wrong. I'm sorry. He is wearing the, the same coat uh, that he was wearing uh, when he leaves the party. Um, so there's that. The last thing I will say on the cops going down there is that I think that this is also the progression from the last film we had the conversation about the comic bookiness. There is some comic bookiness here in this film, and part of that comic bookiness is the comic book logic of we send all the cops in because that's just what you do in a comic book film. And I think, may, for better or worse, maybe Nolan had created a milieu for himself that, oh, you're smarter than that. You don't have to resort to that kind of thing. We're, we're still making a comic book film. So, uh this may be the greatest comic book movie franchise uh, of all times, at least trilogy-wise, which I, I don't think you can argue against that, but still, I, that that's my last thing to say about that. 
but we got to move on because we got so I mean, this movie is just like we, like you said, John, this movie is like fine wine where you just keep sipping on these these things. And and one of the things I want to touch on just real quickly is something that they talk about with Gordon at this party, the wartime and the peacetime. And is there really a difference between those two? Because I'm I'm thinking that it's the complacency of Gotham getting back to the saying, "Oh, well, everything's fine, man. We don't we don't need this wartime conciliary. We we just we basically we like Janko. Janko yeah. Abandando would have solved Gotham's problems. Exactly. We, we we what we need is is we need somebody who's who's cool with it. That we're all cool now. Uh, we don't we don't need this guy who's all worried about crimes that really aren't happening uh and i just thought that was so interesting because it seems like even in our own world it's when we get complacent that bad things happen and you know like constant vigilance shouldn't that just be a thing well i feel like like with the wartime peacetime thing uh i feel like with when you look at the the themes of each movie and what did nolan say the the batman begins his fear uh, the Dark Knight is chaos, and uh, The Dark Knight Rises is pain. Those are the main themes of of each movie, according to Nolan. And I feel like in order to have the most pain, or at least the most reaction to pain, is for it to come in peacetime, come when you're least expecting it. And where the Joker thrived in chaos, in an already chaotic Gotham where he was trying to push it over the edge, Bane came in, who was, you know, like the... I don't want to. I don't want to say the opposite of Joker, but had different purposes. Where he came in to bring the the killing blow, the the killing strike to to Gotham in its peacetime to give that final painful blow. And I like. And I think that that's why I like that Bane is so different from Joker because you cannot top the Joker in the Dark Knight. So that's why you have to do something different. Okay, as a question, because you mentioned the Joker. I think that a lot of people were bothered by the fact that there was no at least reference to the Joker in this. I know that I've spoken with a number of people where they've cited that as one of the problems they have with the film. Do you think that Nolan made the right decision in making this Joker-free? Or do you think that he should have had some sort of passing reference to the Joker? Like somebody... Uh, made these fake storyboards up at one point showing everybody being set free from Blackgate. Yeah. And you just see the Joker smile and, you know, but his gate doesn't open. Um, do you Everyone think thought that no was one... real it too. It yeah, was, it was, of no. course they did. It's oh. the internet. Of course yeah. it's real. Hey. Um, do you guys think that he made the right decision? Yes. Yeah. Mainly I, from I, an I outside perspective. We are all in agreement. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think Joker's fingerprints are all over the film, whether you say his name or not, because it's all about what happened to Dent, which is leading into all of this, and Joker is responsible for that. You don't need to say his name for me to remember that. That's pandering to the audience for no good reason. And I think Christopher Nolan, obviously, contextually outside the film, were respecting yeah. what happened to Heath Ledger. And there is nothing wrong with that. And if you have a problem with that, you have a problem with you have a problem with me. Because that's just ridiculous. I mean, it, come on, we can respect something that happened outside a film, and and still do the film justice. And this film does 
what happened in The Dark Knight complete justice because everything that's happening in this movie is directly related to the second movie and the first movie because every plot point comes from that. So if you have a problem with that, I think that you're just being nitpicky for no good reason. Even Nolan himself said that he shot so much Joker footage that he could have had a Joker plot in The Dark Knight Rises. And he says, he's like, I could, but I won't. And I think if he did anything, if he did anything remotely close to uh, showcasing Heath, even in passing, Heath Ledger, even in passing, it people would have complained. People would have said, oh, you're being opportunistic. You're trying to capitalize off of his death and blah, 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 blah. And so I feel like even though it would have been cool, like if Heath Ledger was still alive, of course we would have a reference to Joker in the third one. We would have, even if it was just a passing one, like, like John, like you were talking about, even if somebody just mentioned his name, that would have happened. But because Heath Ledger died, Chris Nolan compensated. Did he overcompensate? Maybe, but I don't think so. But see, I think that the compensation, uh, the thing is, I agree with you guys. Like, you know, I think he made the right decision to make this its own film. Matt, you're right. It deals with the repercussions of the Dark Knight. But at the same time, mentioning Ledger isn't necessary. Or, you know, the Joker, because we we will all think of Ledger. So I think that uh, there is, like, he's in sort of like a Kobayashi Maru scenario. Where, you know, damned if he does, damned if he doesn't, and he makes the right decision, you know, to, to, I I think that the decision to make it eight years later helps provide that distance to say that's why nobody's talking about the Joker anymore is because it's eight years later, right in your own head, whatever would have happened to him. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, it gives this film its own identity by not having the Joker in it. If you have any reference to the Joker, it's sort of like um, with uh, The Force Awakens where they said, you know, we kept pushing Luke back in the script because as soon as he came in, it was his movie. So I think that probably the Joker, if he's mentioned at any point, it becomes, people become fixated on the Joker. So... Yeah, uh, you know, I, I think it's right. And I think that the eight years, I think that explains why there's that giant time gap between the two films is because it's believable that eight years later, people aren't talking about him anymore. Yeah, I, th- I think you you hit it on the head there. I think that that's a big portion of it. That's a big reasoning behind it, because then it would become his movie. People would be wondering like, oh, are we going to see him? Is he going to use some footage? Any kind of mention people would be expecting that instead of focusing on the movie. And also like think like anybody who's arguing with us right now or disagreeing with us, think about this. Even if they just had one passing phrase where uh, Alfred says like, oh, well, you know, like uh, it, it's, it's so at least you don't have to deal with it with, uh, with the Joker since he's been in prison for eight years, people would immediately go, oh, he's not in prison. He's dead. Heath Ledger is dead. And so they like they their minds would immediately be removed from the movie instead of having you focus on this world that Nolan created instead of the world that we're in. And that is good filmmaking because you're thinking about all aspects. You're keeping people engaged and not distracting them. Well, and I think uh, you said something really important, John, that these villains that are in this film 
are the Joker antithesis, you know, because the Joker is all about chaos and creating chaos. And Bane and Talia are all about having a plan so immaculately planned out that and 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 that's one of the things that I liked about the film and the villains is because that type of planning was just as scary as the Joker's chaos to me that they had every contingency that you know they had worked on and planned on and and they thought they had it all under control and honestly for all of the movie they do until you know Bruce is able to do his thing and uh, you know, just have that vertebrae pop back in and uh, get himself back up to snuff and find his way out of that hellhole, uh, literal hellhole. So, yeah. um, you know, all so you, I, all I you think, need is rope for a broken back. Yeah, all you need is rope. Uh, forget love. All you need is rope. Uh, and so that's <laughs> that's the thing that I thought was really fascinating is that these villains are so completely different than the villains that we had in the second movie. And that was very smart and a nice completion of the circle of kind of going back to the beginning with the same type of very well planned out villain who has everything under control and is, you know, I I like, I just, I think it works so well. And then you are the voice. So I mean, Bane, nothing wrong with Bane. Tom Hardy doesn't get enough love for what he did to make Bane amazing. And I think that um, also to speak to Tristan's point about Nolan always knows how to use the camera. One of the greatest things that he did was with the IMAX version of the film. Every time you saw Bane, it was an IMAX and it was such a clever cheat on his part because Tom Hardy isn't as big as as Christian Bale. Nope. Um, he's like my he size. Lifts. He's like, yeah. Tom Hardy is my height. I yeah. Am not, I am not a large person. But by the way he uses the camera and the sound editing, it makes Bane so much more imposing. And it's, I, I think it's wonderful. And I think that Tom Hardy finding that voice was so key. You know, it's almost like, uh, you know, uh, that thing where you wonder, where, uh, you know, if they hadn't put James Earl Jones in as Vader, right? They found the right voice for Vader. Hardy found the right voice for Bane. Like, without that voice, I like I can't even imagine Bane without that voice now. Even when I see him brought back in the comics, <laughs> like, that's the voice I hear in my head. It's so distinctive and... I, re- I remember hearing a lot of people make fun of it, saying that it was like a um, a hard-to-hear Sean Connery, and I don't hear that at all. I really don't. And I do know that I, I didn't see the prologue before the movie came out like some people did, um, but apparently the vo- his voice was even more filtered in that first release, and Chris yeah, Nolan yeah. had to go back and <laughs> refilter it. Yeah, I I remember specifically seeing the the thing before Ghost Protocol. That was one of the things was I said, no, 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 he should, you know, I was fine with it. And my cousin was one of the people coming out saying, I couldn't understand what the hell he was saying. I was like, no, 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 didn't you, didn't you hear, didn't you hear? And so when the movie came out and he was, he is so much louder and so much clearer in that (laughs) prologue sequence. Yes. Like it is stunning. 
it's it's al- almost to its detriment where yeah you're like like oh this is clearly tom hardy in a studio like this, yes. this is this is clearly him in front of a microphone not in the plane or not right in front of daggett like he is clearly speaking into a microphone and we're using audio that is not in the room yes it was necessary evil no i I agree with you guys because it's funny. I just uh, seeing this on Twitter today, people kind of complaining a little bit about uh, the guy playing Thrawn uh, in the Star Wars Rebels series. That he, it's hard for them to understand him because he speaks kind of softly and slowly. And it, they should hear his brother. I, I don't. I I don't. Yeah, I don't get it. <laughs> Three but, seasons um, of Hannibal. But I think Jeez. I think uh, that the the Bane voice is fantastic, and I I liked the twist that you know it's Talia Al Ghul and bringing that again full circle with Raj Al Ghul, and instead of having him you know be in the Lazarus Pit and living forever, he still finds a way to live forever through you know his his daughter and all, and I just I I liked that whole story, and I thought it was fantastic, and personally love that Bane get kind of goes out a little bit like uh, a punk uh, a little bit like Boba Fett you know he just taken out by Catwoman which is probably my second favorite thing about the film I think Anne Hathaway let's jump into it because Tristan is giving me the face like I'm an idiot that, yeah he, you said this is your second I, favorite thing of the film that is my second least favorite thing of the film I love it I think she is perfect in this movie uh, I I agree that I agree that Hathaway is perfect as Catwoman. This is the fine line that I sit on. Is I think it's a great, funny moment uh, when she's the one that winds up shooting Bane, spoilers, and saving Batman at the end. But I can also recognize that it's a bit of a cheat because they to to borrow. Uh, Tristan's phrase, they had written themselves into a corner. There's no other way Batman's getting out of that. And the only way that it's going to happen is with, you know, somebody showing up and taking Bane out. And, I mean, you know, it's sort of like you could almost open up a whole other moral quandary sort of question where it's like Batman's all like, no guns, no killing, no matter what. But if you shoot somebody, yeah, okay, cool. We're, We're all right. It you know, made me, like it's it made me think of uh, of Simon from Demolition Man when he's pointing the gun at the guy <laughs> who genetically modified him so that he couldn't kill him and then so he yeah. just tossed the gun to another guy and said shoot this fool. Yeah. Okay, that that's a good call out. That well done. Thank you. But what I what I like Deep about pockets. it is is that this is this is the rela- uh, the relationship between especially Bruce and Selena is one of Bruce finding a way to help her redeem herself. Uh, She has been trying to find a way out, wants a way out. And so what Bruce is able to do is to to finally give her that way out. And, and then again, it's, it's, it's not the dark night. It's the light night. Like he, he's, he's become the white night, the white night that, we all said that Harvey Dent was, but it was a lie. But Bruce has become that now. And he's found a way, you know, to help rescue people in all sorts of different ways. And for her, it's, it's morally and almost spiritually 
help her find that way back towards the light as well. And I like that she makes the choice to turn around, come back and help Bruce. Uh, and, and I just, it, to me, it works because thematically it's working with the rest of what's happening with the movie. And honestly, Anne Hathaway is just brilliant in this role. I mean, when she steals the pearls from him and she kicks the cane out and the way she does that so nonchalantly and snarkily and everything about it, it's just, it's exactly what, the way she, it, and I think it's the chemistry that she has with Christian Bale and in the way that they play the role together. It's just phenomenal. So, and I mean, it leads to him being able to go, so that's what that feels like. Which is probably the best line in the movie, if you ask me, because he finally knows what I it feels like. I wouldn't say it's the best line. Um, I'm just it's saying a nice to me. Pull. I it's, said to me. It's so. a nice pull from Kingdom Come. I, I'll give it that. I, I I really like that. But I but I I you, like I I agree with you. I really enjoy Catwoman's redemption arc. I enjoy the fact that that Batman acts in that way, and 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 pulls her along. You know uh, the track of. Like, I think that it's very much a relevant theme, even more so today, of the idea that people, because Catwoman is, Selena Kyle is trapped in this idea that no matter what you do in the past, even if you change, even if you make your life better, people aren't going to let go of what is on the record. And that's what she's trapped by. And Batman... I really love the fact is the one that gives her the means and says, no, if you want to change, you can, and you can like, so there, there's even, there's even a more meaningful redemption arc instead of Batman taking on the sins of Harvey Dent at the end of the dark night. He, he is willing to put faith into Selena Kyle and say, I'll give you the means to turn your life around if you really want to. And she well, it- does. And that's what's so beautiful because not only he literally can wipe away her sins. And I think that's the thing is like he can do that if she's also willing to to make the turn. And again, it's it's a really Christian spiritual idea of being able to turn around and put your faith in something else. And that's what she does. She's able to do that with Bruce and he's able to reciprocate what he says he can do, which is to literally wipe away her sins from the world because both him and her are going to disappear at the end of the film. But it's also a beautiful thing because it also leads Bruce to doing the thing of carrying the entire sin of Gotham away. Uh, with in, in the light of the bomb. I mean, so what's happening in this film to me, and again, I, this is where I geek out, is there's a movie that's telling a story which I believe to be true, but to the rest of the world in a way that they can comprehend it. You know, like it's it's a spiritual, there's spiritual truth being played out, and that's what I, that that's why I love this movie more than all the others in this series, because of of where what it does and and Catwoman and just happens to be a part of that story as well and I I think it really really works so um did you guys like Blake uh did you like that that character of John Blake and and what he'll represent going forward yes I do like Robin John Blake because of the fact that he is dent like uh through the movie and then at the end, in a sense, even though he's the one that castigates Gordon, 
over, you know, the you, you told a lie and you know you worked outside the system and it's wrong. He's the one at the end that says, you know, that basically acknowledges Gordon's point, where he synthesizes this idea of being committed to the truth of everything, but at the same time recognizing mm, that there are yeah. times where you need to work beyond the law in order to get things done. And so I, I, I like that about his character. I like the arc of the character. I like the idea of the character and the character himself more than Joseph Gordon-Levitt's portrayal of that character. Um, there, I like Levitt, Gordon-Levitt as an actor. I really do. I like him a lot. There are certain times when I feel like he... I, I Maybe it's because I'm such a Third Rock from the Sun fan, but there are certain times I feel like he's putting on this much deeper voice than what his real voice is. And I know, like, we saw him go through puberty on TV. But anyway, that's besides the point. But uh, there's this, I don't know, there's just certain times when I was like, Levitt, you're acting like you're acting. Just act. And But the idea of the character and what the character accomplishes and especially at the end where a new dark knight rises i i was in love with the final shot of the film i love the symbolism behind it i love how they worked it in i loved how they set it up uh i'm not entirely in love with them using the robin cheat i think it, I, we would have been able to make that leap without them spelling it out for us i think but that's neither here nor there it didn't ruin anything for me you know whatever but yeah just the idea of continuing on the legacy another person donning the cowl which is very much in the comic books and you know matching the sim symbolism with physical action it yeah that that did it for me here's just hoping that he doesn't go the jean paul valley route of uh being the dark knight <laughs> so <laughs> i liked uh, i liked him and i liked him in the role and what i i really thought was interesting is that he's a continuation of a theme that you see throughout the film of Bruce realizing that he's not so isolated and alone as he thought he was. And I thought that was really cool, is that there are other people that have had experiences like you, Bruce. You're not really special, you know, and, and him realizing that. And I think putting his faith and trust in other people, and that's one of the things that I think is beautiful about the movie, is that Blake is a part of, of Batman fully opening up to the world in a way that he never has before and really in and you don't see it a lot in the comics they they they've done it a little bit more in rebirth um now where batman is is beginning to trust more people in his life uh not just alfred but or, or like a superman but other people uh in the bat universe and i just i thought it, it really worked I, I liked the story that they told with him I agree. I, I think that one of the most poetic parts of the ending, though, you know, as we get to the end of the film and everything, is that plaque at the end where it, it talks about, you know, that, that the home has been given over to, you know, be basically a home for orphans dedicated to the memory of Thomas and Martha Wayne. I think that that speaks to, there was no way to force Bruce to uh, in your words Matt trust other people but when he does it's he he's doing something that is so um, he's answering a personal call to duty 
about everything that is, you know, larger than any mandate he could receive from anybody else. Like, it's this validation of Alfred's idea all the way at the beginning of the film that they don't need your body anymore. They need your resources. And this idea that you can't, you can't force anybody to, you know, give to the poor or help the less fortunate. But Bruce Wayne comes to a realization at the end that the material things truly are something that he, you know, he can let go of and move on from, you know, although obviously he keeps a small stipend for himself to go living in Italy later. Well, but, yeah, you know, I mean, you know, everybody needs a little bit. And of it's, something. it's totally in my head canon that they're able to prove that uh, there was uh, foul doing at uh, at the Gotham's stock exchange, and then Alfred gets all that money back, and then he gets to live, yes. live a life of yes. luxury. Yes, because yes. I mean, yeah. like it's it's crazy, right? That like Bruce doubled down on the same okay. day that Bane did something at the stock exchange. I mean, who right. would put I know. these two things together? <laughs> I know, but but here here's a big question for you. Speaking of Alfred, you know, with the with the money and everything, uh. At, I haven't yet tried it, but I will someday. Has any has anybody tried the drink that Alfred mentions that he drinks while he he's in Italy? I have not. Do they okay. make a Capri Sun version? Ah, <laughs> oh, the two of you, the two. Of hey, you. I I would drink it. You know that, John. I know. I, I got to figure out how to make one, and then I will mail it to you. Yeah. I that do that. Okay, so <laughs> there are just a couple more things, and one of the things that really strikes me about this movie is that it was so relevant when it came out because the whole walk, Occupy Wall Street thing was happening. And this film, it just seemed to mirror that with the way in which Nolan was using Dickens' Tale of Two Cities, the French Revolution uh, uh, idea, uh, and, and really kind of seeing that happen. I mean... <laughs> Crane is literally on a barricade, a French barricade, basically sentencing people to death for no good reason, just because they don't like them, uh, just like the French Revolution. And but what shocked me watching this was just how so relevant it still is, and that great cinema has a way of transcending just one time and space to continue onward. And I just, to me, you know. Yeah when the people become the mob is a big part of, of Bane's plan. And it, it's just as relevant now as it was then. Yeah. I, th- I think this, I think this movie is incredibly relevant and uh, that is a good, that's a sign of a good film to be continually relevant, but it's also a bad sign of the times that it is still relevant. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, I think, uh, yeah, I like this movie. I, as I said before, I think it only improves with age and it only gets better uh, every single time I watch it. And uh, it's uh, like there's a lot of movies that I've uh, that when I saw it the first time I was disappointed and I had to it had to grow on me. And I, I don't I don't think there's any shame in that. Uh, I, I don't, I'm not going to let John movie shame me for uh, for not liking what, it the first time what, I saw it. What did I do? <laughs> what? what? Come on, man. Why do you keep taking shots at me? What did I do to you? Come on. Um, but I will movie shame you uh, because I do. I both loved it when I came out. And I also say that it has gotten better with time. Um, I think that the theme of it is 
is eternally relevant because there's this question of opportunism on Bain's part. And, you know, we've, we've talked about how it all ties together and everything. And they gave him an easier weapon through the lie. But this sort of simmering discontent in Gotham exists. And what happens when this simmering discontent is focused onto somebody who wants to be a leader who has no interest in the common good so much as just blowing everything to smithereens? <laughs> you know, like it's sort of it's it, it it's relevant now. It's relevant back at the fall of Rome. It's relevant during, you know, when the British Empire is going through its, uh, you know, its its own catharsis. Yeah, it's an interesting it's an interesting philosophical question of, you know, how do you guard against the person who comes along? How do you guard against uh, Stalin taking advantage of the Bolshevik Revolution, which was problematic at best, but, you know, at least altruistic in its motivations at the beginning? How do you guard against, you know, Bain is Stalin? How do you guard against somebody coming in and saying, yeah, I know you're all disaffected, and I know that the revolution has started, so let's make it even bloodier. You know, like so I think that's what keeps it eternal. I think that this is is one of those things where a movie just it it can say something at its time and it just continues to transcend. Uh, in the same way, John, that we talk about, especially on, on Six or Two Club, uh, Star Wars episodes, or we'll talk about them, uh, especially in, on aggressive negotiations, the way that the prequels continue to become more and more important with the storyline that they're telling in our day and age. And and like you said, Tristan, it's kind of sad that that's happening. Uh, you know, it would actually be nice if this movie was actually less relevant uh, than it is. But it's, unfortunately, it's not. And so hopefully, as you're listening to this, you can kind of go back and watch it and, I don't know, be inspired to to make a change for the light the same way that Bruce does, which leads me to the, my final question for you guys before we rate this. Do you like the end of Bruce and Selena sitting there in Italy? I I do. I, I like that uh it's uh he finds some peace and more importantly that Alfred knows that he finds some peace. That that's the key thing for me is that if Alfred was in Gotham thinking that Bruce was still dead and we, the audience, saw Bruce run around Italy with, with Selena, I'd be like, send him a letter, do something, let him know. You know, like, so he's not like sobbing every single night saying that he, you know, he failed the Waynes. And so that was the most important thing for me in that scene. And I like that he found peace. I like that he moved on, but that Batman or at least some version of Batman will continue to live on. And... We, uh, uh, you know, John, I don't know if you know this, but comic books are the perpetual second act. And oh, so what, really? Yeah. Yeah. What? <laughs> what? I've only ever heard that's, that on one show. That's stunning. I, I you caught me off guard. <laughs> and so Go on. And so we can't imagine a world where Bruce retires, ex I guess, except for Batman Beyond. But ignore that. Um but uh, ignore the Batman Beyond thing. Uh, but in Batman Beyond, he still passes the torch and we see him mentor. And in this one, we don't see him mentor, but that's okay. But that's the beauty of this trilogy is that 
it's not ongoing like Marvel. It's not ongoing like the Avengers or anything like that. And I'm not knocking Marvel in the least at all. I'm not. Uh, but with this one, it had a it has a very distinct three part structure, a three act structure, a beginning, a middle, and end. In order to really tell this story, we needed an ending to Bruce's story. And Nolan understood that, that this is not like the perpetual second act. This is Bruce's final act, or I should say, Batman's final act. And it would, it'll live on the, like, if you want to perceive a perpetual second act in comic bookiness, it'll live on in Nightwing or something like that. And so that is very exciting to me. And so that is why I liked it. I love the ending. Uh, like I said earlier, I cried at the ending because I I was expecting the sad, melancholy ending, and instead I got Bruce's resolution, and that I wanted it. I wanted it so bad, and I got it. And I like it almost felt like Christopher Nolan sitting sitting down next to me, putting his arm around me, and saying, "Yeah, it's over, John." But it's okay. It's okay. We're we're all right. And I'm like, thank you, Chris. I appreciate that. Um, and I like. I just i i i love the ending. I think everything is great about the ending. And I, you know, I I can't really add on to anything except to say that I will say that um, how it should have ended had a wonderful treatment for the ending. Um, if anybody has not seen that yet. It's it's pretty funny, but yeah, I I I really, you know, I I can't really add on to anything you said, Tristan, except to say that emotionally speaking, the ending is very satisfying. But there's a part of me that wonders: would it have been even more fun? Like at the end of Inception, with the top spinning. I laughed out loud in the audience. There were people I heard groaning and I was <laughs> laughing and I said, yes, you beautiful son of a gun. You did it. I almost wonder if it would have been even better if you had seen Alfred sit down, uh, you know, in Italy to his expensive drink and look out at the audience the way he does now. And then you hear the Batman cue and he smiles and he gets up and walks away and you're left to wonder was Nolan just acknowledging the audience and giving us a bow like the end of Titanic or was he saying that Alfred finally saw Bruce move on well, there I, there are arguments for both well i think so. people still perceived it that way like Nolan had to actually go to the press and say, no, this is the real ending. Like there is no ambiguity because a huge faction of the fan base was still so affected by the ending of Inception. They're like, no, 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 it's just it's just a daydream, man. Alfred was just was, no, was hallucinating. Yeah, no, I, I, no, I thought the language of the end, the, fil the the visual language of the ending was very explicit. It is very explicit. He saw but just, Bruce. just the other day, oh my God, people. Just the other day, there somebody posted a gift set of the funeral scene. And Alfred is there. He's looking at the, at the grave site. And someone posted it underneath and said, if you look closely, he's not actually apologizing to Bruce Wayne. He's actually apologizing to Tom and Martha for failing them. And they said it like it was some grand... Uh, revelation and I'm like oh yeah I saw the movie too 
You know, like it's, right. It's, yeah. It, it, it's when, like when you mentioned the visual language, it's it, it's explicit. It's clear. There is no ambiguity, but people will still want to be special. People will want to say, I'm the smart one. You're the dumb one. And that's why I saw it. And you didn't. I, I don't get yeah. that because I, I feel like uh, if I saw the movie and Bruce and Selena are sitting there at the table having a drink and they acknowledge each other, <laughs> Alfred and Bruce, uh, and and then the director comes out and explicitly tells me, I am I really, should I argue with the director who should know best what he intended for that to mean? So all that aside, I love the ending. I, I, I'm right there with both of you guys because I think you know, because Nolan is specifically making a trilogy, he does complete the story. And it gives us that resolution, like you said, John, that you do want for this character, which I do care about. You know, people say that Nolan's cold and he doesn't do enough emotion, but I care about this character. I, and, and part of that is just because I care about Batman when I see him on screen. But the other part is that I think that the storyline, especially the introspection and the, the pain that Bruce has been going through in this film and throughout the others, all piles up to the point where when he you know steps out of that hellhole and he's coming back to save his city and then he makes the decision, you know, that he could die, you know, I mean, is he going to die when he brings the bomb out? Did he fix the autopilot and all that, that stuff? Um you know, that he's willing to, to give it all up, Batman, and say he's done his part and be okay with that, uh, but set up somebody else to take his place. I just thought was fantastic. And and what I love, too, is that, you know, it's Selena that he le- leaves with, uh, somebody who understands him in a way that most people can't because she's lived that double life. Uh, and and so uh, the person that you're sending him off with is somebody that will be good for him in return. So the whole thing, it just it works to me as is just kind of a a masterpiece. Which leads me to ask, you know, um, what do you rate The Dark Knight Rises? Ah, uh, that's 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 a tough one because I think that the philosophical questions that this one raises, and as evidenced by the conversation that we've just had there's a very rich exploration that occurs thematically in the dark knight rises it is so close to surpa- to being equal to or surpassing the dark knight but it doesn't because there are a few things that as much as we have been heaping praise on it do, for lack of a better term, take it down a notch for me. But that's quibbling over details. And so I will say very plainly that if you say to me, The Dark Knight or The Dark Knight Rises, it literally comes down to what I want to feel like at the end of the film. Dark Knight Rises, as we've said, gives me the ending I want. It gives me the ending I need. You know, for this whole story, I love the scenes with Bane. I adore them. I think that they're amazing. I love the fight at the end, even the line that everybody makes fun of. Uh, You know, no, I came here to stop you. 
that's your comeback, really? But like if 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 you're forcing me to choose favorites, Dark Knight edges it out, but Dark Knight Rises is a wonderful film and I I I love it. So uh, you know like that's that's just where I come down. Uh with me uh as I, as I said earlier in the podcast, uh, I was disappointed with it the first time I saw it, but then the more I watched it, the more I fell in love with it, and the more I realized that this is a good film. This is a great film. Uh, but it is still... I still like Batman Begins above it, and I still like The Dark Knight the best. I mean, the, the Dark Knight to me, as I said in the last podcast, is the best superhero film ever made, and The Dark Knight Rises is really great, but there's just too many things wrong with it for me to get it close to the dark knight because with the dark knight there was really only one major thing that i i disliked where that left a bad taste in my mouth and with the dark knight rises there's about like five and it's so i just there, there's with that many things sticking in my craw with talia's death the magical usb uh, the the cops going underground those kind of things just stick with me and so i cannot give it that near perfect rating like I did with The Dark Knight. Now, the thing is, though, is like where I gave The Dark Knight like uh, five out of five stars or 9.5 out of 10, I'm going to give The Dark Knight Rises probably eight to 8.5. This one hits every button, every matte button there is. Thematically, what it's doing, uh, the, the wrap-up, I just, it, it is to me everything that I want in a film comic book wise and, and no one kind of ingrained that into me with his his series uh, and it's 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 why I continue to love his influence through I know people hate me but uh, through Snyder I liked it I, I like those films that he's made uh, because he's kind of continued that that feeling and this movie to me is just hands down it's my favorite film of this trilogy um, I, I just love it. It is a to me. A, there are some some minor quibbles that I can have with it, but like Batman covering up a multitude of sins for Selina, everything else covers up any of the the cinema sins that we have discussed a little bit. And it's it's a it's a five for me out of five. You know, it's a ten out of ten. I I hands down if I'm gonna watch the you know, the Nolan trilogy, this is probably the one I would pull off the shelf the most because, John, it's the one where I come off with the feeling that I love the most. But it's because of the the thematic element that really hits me. Well, I, I will also say that if I'm pulling something out where I just want to watch a scene or two, this one also gets the edge because I love a good fight scene and the fight scenes between Bane and Batman are wonderful. Yeah, we never talked about that amazing fight scene underneath the armory that, I mean, like, I, I can't get into it right now, and I won't get into it right now, other than to say, how genius was it to have zero music during that fight? Yes. Agreed. Agreed. Yeah, nothing but sound effects. It's perfect. No, you guys are absolutely right. Well, we... As you can hear, we could continue to talk about this. I mean, we, we could go into all of that stuff. We can't because we have lives. We need to get to bed. We've got all sorts of things to do. Thank you so much for being here uh, to listen to the 602 Club. I so much appreciate all of you uh, doing so. And I hope you enjoyed the show 
uh, that we brought to you today. But uh, the other thing that you can help make sure all the shows on the Trek FM network keep coming to you is through Patreon. Patreon is the way in which listeners can support the network to make sure that all the shows keep coming out each and every week to you. Uh, it costs a lot to do this. Uh, there's no way we can do it just by ourselves, us running the network. So go over to patreon.com slash trekfm and see how you can become part of our team just a little bit every month helps us out. So again, that's patreon.com slash trekfm. And I want to thank our associate producers, Ken Tripp, Davis Grayson, and Norman Lau for supporting the show. The 602 Club specifically really appreciate you guys so much for that. Now, uh, Tristan, uh, when uh, you're not here in the 602 Club talking about Batman, where else can people find you? You can find me also on the Trek.fm network on a Star Trek Voyager show called To the Journey, which I host with Charlene Schmidt. You can also find me on the Nerd Party network by going to thenerdparty.com, and I host a general geek show called The Senate Floor, and I also host a show called Nerd Nuptial, which is a show that I host with my wife, which I thoroughly enjoy doing because we look at married life through a nerdy lens. Now, John, uh, when you're not uh, down there under the armory practicing your swings for when Batman comes in, where can we find you? <laughs> well, you podcast like a younger man with nothing held back. <laughs> it's admirable, but mistaken. Uh, I, you can find me. <laughs> you, you, you can find me at Castle Your podcast downloads. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, you can find me at Castle Junkie on your social network of choice. You can find me actually uh, co-hosting here on Trek FM Stage 9 with uh, Mike Schindler, where we explore the non-Trek work of Trek creators. Uh, you can find me co-hosting Words with Nerds with my pal Craig, uh, where we get into all sorts of zaniness. And, of course, you can find me on my own um, podcast nuptial on a show called Aggressive Negotiations, a Star Wars podcast, who I... I have to be honest, I co-host with a charming and bearded young fellow uh, by the name of Matthew Rushing over on the Nerd Party Network. Ooh, I'm just all a flutter after that, John. You just talk about uh, re, re-upping the nuptial there. I really appreciate that. <laughs> um, but yeah, check out uh, the Nerd Party and our show, Aggressive Negotiations. We have a blast. Uh, you can also find me on Twitter at MattRushing02. Uh, you can find me here on the network doing The Orb with Chris Jones uh, to talk about Deep Space Nine. And, of course, you can find me on Literary Treks with Dan and Bruce as we're talking about the books and the comic of Star Trek. And there's only one thing left to say. Thank you so much for joining us. And y'all come back now, you hear?